one viewer on. Hello. Two viewers. Okay, we're just going to live in one moment. Hello, Michal David. Hello, hello. One minute here. Hello, Raphael. Hello, Lara. Hello, Joseph. Hello, Hal. Okay, Baruch Hashem. Good. We are ready to begin. Today, my friends, we are going to be studying about mission control. The mission is your life, my life. We all have a mission. Who's in control? Are we calling the shots? <laughs> Does freedom of choice mean that we actually have the full freedom to do as we please? This is not so simple. So before I begin today, let me acknowledge with gratefulness our sponsors for today's episode, Mission Control. My dear friends, our show members, Ian and Sarah Maggot, who are dedicating the zuchus, the merit of the Torah study that will be done on this table and around the world as we connect via the web in the zuchus of their newly entered into the, cov the covenant of Avram grandson. And he was given the name Boaz Yechiel, May he grow up to be a source of nachas and pride to his parents, to his grandparents, great-grandparents, and all of Am Yisrael. So, let us proceed. 
If you're following along in the Kahat edition, page 63, Vahachamishi. Today we will make the fifth point in demonstrating that from a Torah point of faith, trust should be invested only in Hashem. Now surely you remember, or if you're joining us for the first time, let me reiterate the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya the second, who says, not every believer can be given credit for having trust in Hashem. It's without a doubt that if you trust in Hashem, you certainly have faith in Hashem, but if you don't trust in Hashem, it doesn't mean you don't have faith. You may believe atmospherically, you know, somewhere out there. You believe in these axioms. Of course you wouldn't deny them. This is basic Judaism. This is what your parents and your grandparents and Jewish people have believed in since millennia. But it doesn't change or affect the way you behave. Such is the nature of faith. It can remain distant. It doesn't always saturate and permeate the way we feel or even the way we behave. Betachan, on the other hand, a very different kind of animal. If you trust in Hashem fully, if you vest all reliance in God, you will necessarily live with certainty and you will remove all anxiety, worries, concerns, and fears from your life. Who wouldn't want that? It's within reach. And here, we will emphasize the point of faith, and Rabbeinu Bechaya will illustrate for us how it should speak to you and I, and how it should inspire us to intensify and deepen our connection with Hashem through the marvelous and incredible quality known as betochen, trust. Perhaps it would be a good idea for us to note First off, that although we start with the word vahachamishi, and the fifth, this is the fifth criteria as it's being reimagined, enumerated yet again in the third chapter. We've heard about this before, as the Neder Bakredish points out. Hu inyin hashishi. Five is actually six, vis-a-vis what was said earlier. So earlier, going back to the second chapter, the sixth quality was in order for me to trust somebody, I would have to know that that person is the sole individual who can behave impactfully towards me, doing things that are good or bad. But I'd, I'd have to know that this person actually has soul wherewithal or sole custody. And at that point, I'd be able to trust. And Rabbeinu Bachaya, you know, re-emphasizes this uh, towards the end of that chapter. And he says, so who does have 
sole custody of us. If you think about it, really only God. And he says this is spoken about clearly. The fact is that the things that benefit a person or harm him are not in the domain of other human beings, but in fact they are vested solely in the hands of God. A number shut Adam, they are not in the hands of people. Ki'im biyad habore, in the hands of the Creator. And as such, our trust would best be placed in Him. Here, as Rabbeinu Bechaya reapplies these ideas in a manner that should resonate with us emotionally, in a way that should make it easy for us to personalize. He uses very lucid, very straightforward language that should be able to appeal to our mind's eye. We should be able to take these lofty faith axioms or ideals and kind of bring it into sharp field of vision for ourselves. Like imagine yourself in that situation. What would you do? How would you feel? And of course, that's the way we should feel towards Hashem. Says the great Rabbeinu B'chaya, Ein biad echod mehabruim lohoyil al nafsheh. None of these supposed providers, the people we trust in, don't look at me funny, we all trust in people. It's almost intuitive, as it's foolish. <laughs> Here's a simple example. I was once called to the hospital bed of an older woman from our community. She was very sick. By the time I got to the hospital, she was just outside of the operating theater. Her family was surrounding the gurney as I approached. And as I came, the surgeon arrived at the same time. And the surgeon says to this older woman, a Holocaust survivor, he says to her, I have to inform you that 93 or 94% of people who have this surgery don't make it. Some of them die on the operating table. And she looks at him quizzically, and she says, Ich nicht. I don't understand. So he repeats. He says, it's my responsibility. I have to let you know that this is the kind of surgery that's very risky and a very high percentage. And again, he listed a number. It was 90-something percent. Don't make it. Many die on the operating table. And she turned to me. <laughs> and she said to me in Yiddish, Vos zukter. She says, what's he saying? So I said to her, Er zokt as ihr wird sein gesund. He's saying that you're going to be fine. The doctor turns out he's Jewish. and <laughs> He speaks Yiddish. He says, that's not what I said. I said, yeah, that's what you said. He says, who the blank are you? That's not what I said. And I still remember how this woman looked at me. Big, large, her eyes were very big, and she looked at me and she said, I trust you. She said, I trust you. You're saying I'm going to be okay? I said, yeah, you're going to be okay. And the doctor was very unhappy with me. I guess that was fine. She was wheeled into surgery. Baruch Hashem, she survived the surgery, and she went on to live for another couple of years, and she merited participation in the weddings of grandchildren, the greatest nachas. 
Now, let's be real. Why, why did you put her trust in me for? What do I know? I mean, the doctor is giving her statistics. But the truth is, the doctors have the job of providing healing, not predicting the future. And as we've said so many times, when you talk about statistics, past statistics don't necessarily inform the present reality. A simple example I talked about in the previous episode. You throw the coin up, it's 50%, heads or tails. And after 10 times heads or tails, in the 11th time, it's still 50%. Although you would say that the chances increase with each time, that it will probably end up being the opposite. But the truth is that the previous tosses have no effect on this toss. So if this surgery couldn't be successful, which is clearly can be successful and it was successful, why emphasize the 80 or 90% of failure when you could emphasize, yes, there are people who do survive. And the truth is, it's in Hashem's hands. We do our part, the rest is in God's hands. But people trust people. People will trust their doctor. They'll feel better if the doctor told me that there's very high chance of recovery, I feel better. If my stockbroker told me, in all likelihood, you're going to be very wealthy next month, I feel better. If somebody's boss assured them that, yes, you're going to get a raise, they feel fantastic. They're ready to go spend money they don't have. Well, the boss promised a raise. And yet, we all know that with the best of intentions, people make guarantees and promises that they may never keep. Who knows who will be alive or dead tomorrow? Who knows who will have or lose tomorrow? We have seen this over the last, I would say, maybe year and three quarters since COVID hit, probably more than ever before. Although in truth, Hashem was always in charge. And just because most of the time what we thought was going to happen actually happened doesn't mean that it ever had to be so. But people place their trust in people all the time. They're confident. They feel good because they got a person's guarantee. Pina Bechaya says, who in heaven are you trusting? There is none amongst the created beings. You could translate that as human beings, but it doesn't say human beings. I'm not even sure why he translates that in, in some of the versions as human beings. There are, there's no creation that has the ability to be able to help itself. Nobody can guarantee their own future. Nobody can guarantee their own success. As the Marple Nefesh puts it, Lahoel et nafsho, he says simply et atzmo. You can't even help yourself. How are you helping me? Yeah, I know you made a promise. What does that promise mean if ultimately your promise, your promise is not necessarily something you can act upon? You can't even promise to yourself. In the Menor Chalavavas, he says, there is no creature in the universe that can actually chart its own course, that can guarantee 
its own welfare. There is nobody who can necessarily do themselves harm. And since they can't do it to themselves, <laughs> it's a given, how can they necessarily do it to somebody else if they can't even help or harm themselves? So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, L'hoyel means to help, to do something beneficial. Not to cause self-harm. And he certainly can't to another. He says the Paslechem, Just as no created being has the ability to necessarily save itself, how can it help or save the other? Save with permission. So we're on a mission. But there's mission control. Mission control is what God will allow to happen. And what he won't. Incidentally, that doesn't mean that you're exonerated from the bad decisions you made or won't get credit for the good decisions you made. Trying to harm somebody else is a grave sin. One of the first things the Torah tells us about Moshe Rabbeinu is the way he intervenes in circumstances in situations that are not of his doing or necessarily of his purview or responsibility. He intervenes on behalf of a helpless Hebrew slave who's being abused and tormented by his Egyptian taskmaster. And Moshe Rabbeinu can see into the future, as Rashi tells us, but it also could be understood very literally. He saw there was nobody doing anything about this. Nor would they. There would be no justice. And therefore, he understood this to be a sign from heaven that if nobody else is going to act and you have the ability to do something, that in fact, it's your mission. So Moshe Rabbeinu acts affirmatively. He eliminates the threat as Moshe Rabbeinu can. The very next day, he sees two Hebrews they're bickering, squabbling amongst each other. But worse, they're resorting to blows. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Russia, you wicked person. Why would you hit your fellow? Rambam in his Sefer HaMitzvah famously tells us that it is a prohibition to violently strike a fellow. And we know this because Moshe Rabbeinu called the person striking his fellow a wicked person, a Russia. And the Rebbe once asked, one second, it doesn't say, Rasha lama hikita, why did you hit? It says, lama taka, why would you hit? Why would you hit? Well, he didn't hit yet. He didn't do the crime. Why is he already wicked? You can't be condemned for a crime you didn't commit. 
Rabbi gives a very interesting explanation. He says, when Datan and Aviram were squabbling, when they were quarreling, Datan threw a punch. Now the punch missed, but he still acted in a wicked way. He struck his fellow. He may have struck out. <laughs> he didn't make contact, but that doesn't mean that he didn't do a sinful act. Throwing a punch, trying to harm, trying to hurt somebody is actually a sin. Perhaps this is a paradigm for the various efforts we might make in life for good and bad. If a person makes the effort to do something good, their best effort, if they fail for circumstances that are beyond their control, the Talmud says, The scripture considers it as if you would have done the mitzvah because you did your best, because you wanted to. Now, mind you, sometimes people aren't meritorious, aren't fortunate enough to be able to do the mitzvah, but that's in God's hands. You know, it's a mitzvah to have children. And you only fulfill the mitzvah when your children have children. But the truth is, we can do our part to the best of our ability. It doesn't mean we're going to have children. Tragically, there are many righteous people, pious people, who did everything they could and yet, for Hashem's reasons, were prevented from having children. So when the Torah gives you an instruction, is the Torah giving you a command about something you can't? Obviously not. <laughs> How could God make demands of something that's not within your purview? In the words of our sages, in God does not make impossible demands of his creation. So if he makes expectation, we must have the wherewithal, the ability to be able to fulfill it. Otherwise, he couldn't give us the mitzvah. That is to say, we are responsible for making the right choices. If we chose wrong, we'll be held accountable and responsible. If we had the good fortune, the zechut, the efforts we made will be blessed with success. If we didn't merit, the efforts we made will sometimes fall flat. But effort is all that's expected of us. In the end, it's not in our control. The only thing that is in our control is the choices we make. As one wise person once said, we don't get to choose the circumstances, but we are expected to react appropriately. And that's a choice we'll be held accountable for. So Rabbeinu Bachaya says, there is no created entity that's actually in control. There's no created entity in the universe that has its own dominion. We're all under Hashem's dominion not to help or to harm. So certainly, ki'im, rather, ultimately, birushus is barich. Everything remains forever in the domain, in the proverbial hands of Hashem. And that's how it remains. It's interesting to note that when Rabbeinu Bachaya highlights these criteria earlier on in the second chapter, 
So, you know, in, in, in the first iteration of introducing these different criteria, the sixth factor, or the sixth criteria is introduced as that the person who has the trust is completely in the hands of the one that they trust. So he's talking about the person who has the trust. The truster. I know that doesn't really sound right. <laughs> but then later when he talks about the qualities as they are to be found uniquely in the hands of Hashem, it says, toy al toy. His benefit, his harm, a number of shutadam are not in the hands of a human being, but biyadabora in the hands of God. So, in both instances, in the first chapter, in the second chapter, Rabbeinu Bachai is speaking about me, I, the one who is vesting or placing his trust in someone else. It's not about that provider earning my trust, it's about me choosing to place the trust. Here, Rabbeinu Bechaya is speaking about how God necessarily earns or deserve your, deserve your trust. When you talk about a, a person who may have placed trust, it clarifies cerebrally and intellectually the kind of things you're looking for if you're to place trust. Now, Rabbeinu Bechaya is speaking to us in a very personal way. He says, who's going to help you? Who are you trusting? None of these creations, none of these forces, none of these powers have the ability even to help themselves. Everybody in whom we might be trusting, and this includes all of us, let's be honest. We feel better if somebody in power promised us something. Or are afraid if somebody in power threatened us with something. But the truth is that everything remains is barich. And here Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu Bechai gives us a very graphic example of this. An example that we should be able to relate to. If not in actual real time, but at least in our in mind's eye or our imagination. Suppose there were a person who is an indentured laborer. He has no rights. That's the meaning of a slave. By the way, when Torah uses slave terminology, it does not mean abuse, it does not mean beatings, it does not mean harm, it means no rights. A person who is free always has the right to quit. They may forfeit their wages. A person could have worked and done 90% of the task and says, I'm not coming back to work. I'm not finishing the last 10%. Pay me my 90%. And the employer might say, if I have to go find a new contractor, I have to pay a whole new fee. It's going to cost me. This is a $10,000 job. If I have to find somebody to finish the last 90%, it's going to cost me $9,000. All I'm going to give you is $1,000. The employer would be correct in saying so. They'd even have the right to promise you more money and only pay you the original amount. Because you're playing around. You're defaulting. You're not following through on your commitment and your bond. You're not being honest. But you still have the right to do it. Nobody can be forced to do anything. There may be a price to pay, but you always have the freedom to refuse to continue. Unless, of course, if you're a slave. Then you have no rights. 
Say your boss can assign work to you that you really detest. <laughs> you may choose to leave that employment. That's your choice. And if you can prove that the boss violated your rights in some way by assigning a job to you that was inappropriate, well, you may have a case. Such as the perks of living in a free society where employees or workers have rights. And so it should be. But even in the event where the employers did nothing wrong and the expectation was entirely reasonable, you still have the right to decline. Always. But the slave doesn't. He's not a free person. So, suppose there's a slave who answers to multiple masters. Each of them is capable of bringing benefit to the slave, maybe providing him with nourishment or hydration, giving him a roof over his head. You wouldn't really be able to trust any of them. Why would it make no sense to trust any of them? Well, it would make no sense to trust any of them because, because, <laughs> you know, if, if boss one won't provide, at least boss two will provide. So I don't trust one more than the other. I, I know I'll be fed. Well, I have option A, and if option A collapses, I always have B, and then there's C, and then there's D. I'm, I'm, I'm calm. I, I know that I can rely on my many masters. Somebody will feed me. Somebody will give me my needs. They will be met. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, Vem echod mehem yochol. If one of them is going to be able to assist or help more so than the others, in other words, one master's stronger, more capable, so then it's self understood. How much will you trust them in accordance with their ability? Somebody also trust the other ones. You know, somebody's going to take care of them, but this is the main boss. So you put your primary trust in the main boss, even though there are other bosses, so to speak, who can help you as well. Now let's go a little bit further. So what happens if, in fact, only one of them is actually capable of helping or harming you? So then, in that case, certainly, then you just place your trust in the one who can actually help or harm. Why? Because you're not expecting any kind of benefit or to be helped by any of the other ones. This is the main boss. This is the person who's got the keys to the safe. They control the purse strings. So that's the who are you going to rely on? And yet, all of this is very much within the purview of people trusting other people. So we trust that we'll have a livelihood. We trust. Suppose you have a whole bunch of customers, and you know, 
you don't really need the other customers because one customer, he is the linchpin of your business. And as long as you can maintain that customer, you're going to be fine. Sure, you maintain the other customers. Why not? It's good to have a few extra dollars, but that customer will keep you going. Then you rely on that customer. And as long as that customer is yours, you feel comfortable, confident. You can certainly continue to run this business. But that's all an example of the kind of things that you and I trust in. May I add foolishly. The commentaries on Rabbeinu B'chaya elucidate and explain this in greater detail. Yochel al hagdolosai. So he says, Paslechem, Yochel hagdil toyalta yosem One stands to benefit you in a far greater fashion. Just one. And you don't know, I mean, you do know who that is. He, he can help you. Machmas gdulosai, says the Barber Nefesh, because he is more prominent Chazka is more powerful. Me'odin Acher. So, who are you going to trust? The most powerful of them. The one who is most capable. The one who actually makes the decisions. Even though the others could somewhat get in your way, harm or hinder or help, but you go straight to the top. Why bother with the little people when the big boss is on your side? And you're relaxed. You have no fears. You know that this project will get done because the big boss is there for you. Really? That's where you place your trust? Now, it's interesting that Rabbeinu B'chayi uses the example of a slave who's imprisoned. That's, that's the actual example that he uses. That's the example he used earlier. I don't think it's because that was the most uh, common situation for most people who are slaves who are imprisoned. But the truth is that the slave who's imprisoned knows that there is only one source of sustenance. That's the master. It's not really like an option. So in the same way, a person might be faced with a crisis, a health crisis, a financial crisis, economic difficulty. Where is he going to put his trust? As the Kihat version points out, with an analogy of a servant, the author is capturing the essence of Betachen. Why? So he says an imprisoned servant does not merely choose to trust his master. It's not like a choice. Rather, he's aware of what will occur. He knows that he's solely dependent on the wishes of that particular master. So the, the person who has betochen in Hashem, the person who has true trust in Hashem, is not only somebody who chooses to trust in Hashem. So I could trust this, that, or the other. Or God, I'll choose to trust God. The person with real betochen knows with a certainty that there are no guarantees anywhere with the exception of Hashem. Only God is in full control. So therefore, he places his or her trust entirely in Hashem, and he says, the rest is in God's hands, and I'm perfectly calm about it. Perfectly relaxed. Rabbeinu B'chayi continues to make the point 
Just as in the situation, one is more powerful in whatever way that is, that is, you would put your trust in that one most powerful boss, as the Toiv Halavonon says. So, imagine there was only one, there was nobody else in the running. Certainly, that person or provider would be the address of your absolute trust. V'cheni says, Kishayar Gisha Adam, Shaloi Yo'ilenu Veloi Yazikenu Echad Mehanevroim. I believe that the words are chosen very carefully here. He doesn't say kishayeda when he knows. Kishayargish, when the person feels this is not enough to know. Because to know can be to believe, to have a certainty like a faith certainty. I know it is so, but I don't feel it. And because I don't feel it, I'm not acting in accordance with it. It's something I believe in. But not a belief that informs my behavior. As we've talked about so many times during the course of this series, the Ganef who's crying out to God, Hey, God, please help me! As he's making a heist, as he's violating the Torah and indicating that he has no trust that God could provide for him in a legal and appropriate way. So here we have a situation where a person has to feel, you have to feel it in your heart. Nobody can harm and or hurt you. Nobody can benefit or help you. The mission control is in God's hands. So what should I be afraid of? At that point, he turns his heart away. He restores his own spirit. Instead of having his heart being entirely overwhelmed with fear, or instead of directing his hope and anticipation towards a particular human provider, instead he knows and feels the truth that only God is in control of his life's mission. And as such, the Yiftach al Habayr he places his sole reliance, sole trust in the Creator alone. Kemoshanemar, as it is written, Al King David says, Psalm 146, verse 3, Do not place your trust in nobles. Beven Adam she'ein lo in the hands of a human who himself cannot achieve salvation. In the Paslechem, he says, Al Did you notice that David HaMelech seems to redundantly say the same thing? He says, Al Don't trust the noble, the nobility, those in governance. Beven Adam, Sha'in Lays Joy says, Kafal. Yes, there is a seeming redundancy here. He does repeat himself for emphasis, but this is neged toyeles venezek. This is insofar as assistance or harm are concerned. So, you know, maybe somebody can't help me, but they can still harm me. Wrong. Not only can they not help you if Hashem doesn't want them to help you, they can't harm you if Hashem doesn't want them to harm you either. They've got nothing on you. 
You're in Hashem's hands, if you choose to be. Al tiftuchu, don't place your trust. Don't place your trust. How many of us do this all the time? We place our trust in people of power. Daphne Mel says, don't do that. Because if you place your trust in people, you are necessarily removing yourself from the blessings that Hashem wants to direct your way because you placed your trust in people. And that puts up like a barrier between you and the goodness that was earmarked and has your address on it. Don't place your trust. Don't believe or trust that they will be the ones to assist, to aid you. To a person who can't save you. Don't put your trust in them. If they do, it's only if they save you or help you, it's only because Hashem decided it should be that way. And this is the meaning of Ein Lo Teshua. As if to say, what if he does turn out to be the one who helps me? Says the Paslechem, even the help that that provider offers, it's not their help. It's the help that God chose to give through them. Now, they made the right choice. And as the Gemara and Bavakama says, we do have the right to say thank you to the waiter, even though it's not his wine. But rather, who is our real appreciation directed towards? Kiyim labeiri is baruch. Gam ha-kavona she'ein loi it also means he can't even save himself. He can't save himself. He can't save you. When he saves you, it's not he who saved you. How many times do people say, oh, I saved his life. Of course he owes me, big time. I did this. Now, don't get me wrong. Menschlichkeit, decency, appreciation, gratitude to others, it's a very important part of living a proper life. We always should say thank you. But don't trust in people. Because you can say thank you and appreciate the fact that they made the right decision. But what actually came your way is ultimately a gift from Hashem. And it doesn't have to be a contradiction. As mentioned, the famous Gemara in Mesechet Bavakama, in, in its Hebrew original, the wine is the residuals of the master. The kindness, you can say thank you, the favor for the waiter who poured. You should always say thank you. You should always be appreciative. But you should never trust anybody. Never rely on anybody other than Hashem. The Neder Bakredish in his commentary, 
He says, Ein lo teshua. He has no salvation. Even if you receive some kind of major help, aid, intervention, assistance, salvation from a person, it's not theirs. Hashem arranged that they were meritorious or fortunate or lucky enough to be in the right time and the right place. And to their credit, they made the right decision. But ein hanediv elashliach. The benefactor is only an agent in God's hands. Shenizgalgal zechut al yedei zakai. Hashem arranges it that a meritorious act came through a person who was predispositioned to become meritorious. But what they gave isn't actually theirs. That doesn't mean you should thumb your nose at a benefactor and say, what do I have to say, thank you to you for? You're just a, a donkey who's pulling a load. You're just a hatchet wielded by the hat, the woodchopper. God's the woodchopper. You're nothing. That's what's called not menschlichkeit. That's called not decent. The decent, the pro- appropriate Torah thing to do is to say thank you and to show appreciation. All the while knowing that the real appreciation and the real thanks, and of course trust, has to be directed towards Hashem Yisbarach, towards the Almighty, not the people. In the words of the Toiv Halavonon, he says, the benefactor, he can't even help himself. And if he can help himself, it's only Rak Mitzad Habayri's Baruch. It's only because God allowed him to help himself. Lefikach, he says, Yoyser Roy Liv Toyach why wouldn't you place your trust in the Creator? Now, all of this seems so reasonable, so lucid, so logical, until we get to real life. Because the moment we're stuck in a situation, have fears, anxieties, or concerns, and somebody comes along and says, I'll take care of things. You say, oh, phew, he's taking care. And we place our trust in people who couldn't help unless Hashem wanted them or allows them to. So why not place your trust to begin with in the Almighty, in HaKadosh Baruch Hu Himself? It's very interesting to note that this idea is actually expressed in many different ways. It's not, it's not, I don't think it's um, unique to Rabbeinu Bechaye Ibn Pekuda or the Shara HaBetochen. The truth is that this idea is found in the scripture, throughout the scriptures that talk about the concept of bitachon, and specifically emphasizing that ultimately everything remains in Hashem's hands, and it's not a contradiction to the freedom of choices that we are given, because that's what makes us meritorious, and that's Hashem's special opportunity for us, but it doesn't mean that we are the masters of our destiny. It doesn't mean that we are the ones who can control somebody else's destiny. We can only make choices that bring us merit or demerit Be'eni Hashem in the eyes of Almighty God, the Creator. 
So let's take a look in the book of Lamentations. It's prophecy, right? Jeremiah. Chapter 3. Yirmiyo Hanavi says, Chelki, my portion. Hashem is God. Amra Nafshi, that's what my soul said. My portion is God. Al Cain, therefore, Oichaloi. Therefore, my hope is directed to him. So you should know, as a matter of fact, that the concept of hope, as it's discussed in the Mepharshim, is described as bitachon, trust. This idea, as hope being described as an expression of trust, is found in the commentary of Rabbeinu Yonah on Proverbs in the third chapter, multiple times, where he emphasizes that there is this link between what we would call hope, placing my hope, and placing my trust. For example, quoting a verse from the book of Job, he says that when it says in the book of Yov, Lo Ayachel, to him or for him and in him I place my hope, he says, This is a hope that is essentially taken from, lifted out of a sense of betachen, a sense of trust in Hashem. So that trust in Hashem allows me to place my hope in Hashem. Earlier, Rabbi Yehuda says, "Hatochelat nikra betachon." The idea of placing one's hope, one's aspiration, one's anticipation in a particular entity—of course, here God—is called betachon. So, Hashem, Chelki Hashem, there's a portion. My portion is God. Al Cain, therefore, Oichel, therefore, I will hope to Him or be, so to speak, invested in, in God in a trust level. So here's what the Medrash Rabbah says about this, the Medrash Echa. Chelki Hashem Amra Nafshi. Rabbi Abohu B'Shem Rabbi Yochanan Amar. Rabbi Abohu in the name of Rabbi Yochanan taught that if you wish to understand this, here's the parable or metaphor. Lemelech Shenichnas Limedina. There's a king who arrives in a particular province, as the Mepharshim put it, for whatever purpose it is. The king arrives for a purpose, a purposeful visit. Vahoyu imoy, and he has with him duchosin, vi'iparchin, vi'istartilutin. Who are these different people? So the way the Mepharshim explained it, Duchasin are sarim. Sarim is probably similar to the Latin or English word duke, but it means ministers, royal ministers. So the king has his cabinet and he has his royal ministers, people who are responsible for portfolios of the nation's welfare. He also has with him iparchen. Iparchen, these are governors or provincial executives, those responsible for governing the individual provinces or regions. And then we have Istarti Lutin. Istarti Lutin, says the, say the, the Mepharshim, are the leaders of the armed forces, the generals. Now these are three different levels of power. 
One is more of a attached, I suppose you would say, to the federal level of power. These are the ministers of cabinet. These are the people who are engaged in federal executive control. Then you have the provincial, what they call in the states the state governor, or we call in Canada the, the, the premier of the province. So it's a provincial thing. And then we have the armed forces, and today the armed forces have their hands tied. But once upon a time, the people who ran the armed forces, and in many countries it's still that way, these are extremely powerful individuals. So you had these very, very prominent individuals, the great people, and they're sitting there. I don't know what that means, they're, they're, they're right in the thick of things. Khadamar one said, I am going to put my trust in the ministers. I'll, I'll find a minister, I'll develop a relationship with him, and he will be, or she will be, my source of sustenance. Khadamar, another said, I'm going to go for provincial control. I'll go for the provincial governor. Why bother with a federal minister? I'll worry with the, the premier, the guy who is actually responsible for what happens here in this province. They'll be my patron. They'll be my provider, my security, my protector. And one said, I'm going to go for the armed forces. Because in the end, whoever has the weapons actually controls things. And they're the most powerful. So I will take the army and its leadership, senior brass, as my patron. Medr says, There was one very, very clever fellow. Omar, he said, Ano, I, Nasev Lumalka. I'm going to take the king. <laughs> I'll rely on the king. The Kula Meschalfen. Because everybody else can simply fade away. The king can replace him. Malka ini mischalaf. Royalty is royalty. The king doesn't change. And the Medrash goes on to say, Kain evdi kechovim, mehen evdim lechama, umhem evdim lalavono, umhen evdim leetz vaevin. So amongst the nations, the pagan nations, there are those who worship the sun on Sunday, or the moon on Monday, Monday I mean, some of them worship figures of wood or of stone. The nation of Israel serves none other than God Himself. This then is the meaning of a portion of God or God is my portion, said my soul. I place my singular reliance on Hashem twice a day. I emphasize God's unity, which means God's dominion, control of everything. As we, as we say when we put on the tefillin, as we're supposed to think, that God has full dominion of everything, the spiritual reality, the material reality, and everything in between. And we, we express this daily with the words, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echot. So, so why do you have to be so smart to choose the king? 
I mean, if you have a choice and you could choose a minister, you could choose somebody from the armed forces, a general, a chief of staff, we can choose a provincial leader, a premier, a governor, or you can choose uh, the king. Who wouldn't want to choose the king? Like, like, why not choose the king? It's a very good question. And this question is discussed at length in Hasidic manuscripts and Hasidic writings. I'll share with you a snippet of a much longer and nuanced teaching of Rabbi Shalom Dovber, the fifth Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, because today is the Rebbe Rashab's birthday. Although these ideas are talked about in the Maimarim of his father, the Rebbe Marash, and Maimarim of the Tzemach Tzedek, and multiple other places in Hasidus. So he says that the Pikeach understood al tiftuchu v'nedivim, what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says right here. The Pikeach understood, don't place your trust in nobility, b'ven odom she'en le'tshua, in a person who has no real salvation. Says the Rebbe Rashab, this refers to the husk, to the external realities that God created to make our world function as if stuff just happens. It's all a husk, it's all a peel, it just serves a purpose. We live in a world like this so that we can have the freedom of choice, so that we can in effect, change, modify, and eventually eliminate the darkness, ushering in a blessed new era of clarity, peace, and prosperity. That's the concept of Mashiach. And once that happens, the klipa is gone forever. This very idea, the forces of klipa, he says, are called nedivim. They're called nobility in the Zohar and Parsha Struma. And he gives a quote, two quotes. And the Rebbe Rashab says something very interesting. It's not so easy to get the blessings if you want it directly from God. You have to earn the blessings. You have to be deserving of the blessings. And the deserving or earning nature of the blessings can be summed up in one word. The idea of effort. The hashpah does not come Goodness of life has to be earned. You eat by the sweat of your brow, so to speak. And that's the meaning of don't look for free lunches. Don't look to live a dissolute life in which you wish but to pleasure yourself. Instead, ask yourself the bigger questions for what does God need me, what is expected of me, and what efforts do I have to make to be able to achieve that mission. In the end, everything's in Hashem's hands. But I have the choice. I have the choice to receive it from Hashem directly in a manner in which I'm deserving because of my effort and toil, which incidentally can sometimes boil itself down to plain old trust, which is very difficult, not easy at all. Or I can rely on the easy way out. And if I'm looking for the easy way out, I may get what I'm looking for, because Hashem is in control, but it does not bring any lasting satisfaction. Because it's klipa, and klipa in the end rots. This is a mimer from the year 1900, Tafrish Samach, or 1899. The Rebbe Rashab goes on and he says, that's the meaning of kulum ischalfen. Because all of the other forces, the dukes, 
you know, there's, there's ministers, the provincial governors or, or, or premiers, the, the armed forces, mischalfen, they don't last. Ein lohem chua, they don't have eternal salvation, they don't have lasting satisfaction. It's empty. Let me give you a, a silly, but maybe not such a foolish metaphor. There are two ways that a person can find happiness. The first is through toil and through effort. To know that you have a purpose in life and to do what it takes to get to that purpose. There is an easier way, you know. It's called narcotics. You can just be happy. Cost a couple of bucks. You don't even have to smoke it. Today in Ontario, you can buy it as a salad dressing and you'll be happy. You have your marijuana dressing, you feel great. Hey, what's wrong with that? Why do I have to toil to be happy? Why do I have to work and make efforts and then earn a sense of inner satisfaction and happiness if I can find happiness in a little bottle? Either alcohol or drugs, find happiness. No, tell me, my friends, that happiness lasts. Is it truly satisfying or does it dissipate? And then you hit a low, and the low is even worse than before you went on the high. And you crave another high, and that's, of course, how a person goes down the terrible path, the destructive, self-destructive path of addiction. But even if it doesn't lead to addiction, it's not a lasting satisfaction. Anybody who has the privilege of raising a family, having nachas from children, anybody who has the gift of a meaningful, satisfying matrimony, a relationship for which you toil and make efforts, you have to compromise and go out of your way, but there's a certain inner joy, a certain inner satisfaction to life. You can have fun for a couple of bucks. You don't have to be married, unfortunately, these days. I shouldn't say these days. It's always been the case. They call it the world's oldest profession. Apparently, neither of the things that I mentioned are really satisfying. None of them really make people happy. Baruch Hashem, I don't know. But that's my understanding from talking to a lot of people who've had that experience in a personal way, living empty, dissolute lives. A life in which one seeks a little bit of gratification, sensuality, pleasure, the fulfillment of some libido, and then is left with nothing. Mischalfin, says the Rebbe Rashab. It's misbatlin, misabdin. You get that moment of pleasure, you got the high, and then it just dissipates, and it's gone. And he brings a very interesting medrash. He says there's a medrash that talks about this idea that the Jewish people left the land of Egypt in the spring. And there's a whole like emphasis. In fact, every year, annually, we have to celebrate Pesach in the spring. Bechodesh Aviv. And this is exceptionally challenging for us. We have a lunar calendar. So we're missing about 11 and a half days every year. 
The solar calendar is 365 days. The lunar calendar is 354 and a half days. So if you're missing 11 and a half days, what do you do? Three years goes by, you're 33 days set back, or 34 days set back already. That's over a month. Another three years go by from Pesach being in April, now you're having Pesach in February. This is an easy graphic illustration of this where the Chinese New Year can take place at any time of the year as something, well, something like Ramadan. Because it's only a lunar calendar, but our calendar is lunar months but solar years. Yeah, how do you do that? Ah, every couple of years you add a leap month. It becomes a leap year by adding a 13th month. And the month is always placed at the end of the year, so to speak, pushing us forward into the Aviv, the spring. So listen to this fascinating medrash and the way that Eber Hashab explains it. He says, the medrash tells us this uh, narrative, this proverbial conversation that took place between the stalks, the chaff, and the wheat. So, in the winter, this Beimesak Shomri says, Huzman hat smicha, it's the time of growth. Oz and iniker, mihua iker. You look at the fields, not in Canada, here we see snow, but you know, like in the Middle East where there's a lot of rain in Israel. What do you see in the winter? You see the stalks starting to shoot up, starting to grow. So, what's it about? In Bakash, Bahateven, is it about the straws, about the stalks? Or is it about the chita? It's about the wheat. Adarabah. Hakash v'hateven, nirim yeser. You see stalks, you see tall grass, you don't, you don't see any bulbs. You don't see any actual kernels of wheat. Hachito behelem. It's inside the stalks. Any nearest, it's not seen. Avol kashara stovever. But when winter passes, oz nireh iker hu Then you can see suddenly but it's not about the stalks. Then it's the kernels. It's the bulbs of wheat that become overridingly prominent. And it says in the Medrash in the end of Parshas Vayishlach, You have the straw, the stalks, they're arguing with one another. One says, it's for me. They planted this field. Amra achitim. So this latent potential little kernel said, Hamtino, don't bother arguing, guys. You just wait. Wait until the time of threshing arrives. What happens? Bola comes to the threshing, the chaff, the, the stalks, the straw, everything is cast aside. And then it's the kernels, the bubbles of wheat that are harvested. And that's how we have that pile of grain. So too, when we were in the Egyptian exile, Nire hakash v'ateven. What did you see? We have this idea about the bricks and mortar that were made of straw and grass. 
And uh, the Jewish people weren't looking very good. We were, so to speak, overwhelmed with the exilic circumstances. But then spring came. The Jewish spring. Then the nation of Israel is redeemed. And this, my friends, tells us that Eber Hashab is what this is about. You can choose a desolate life. Yes, you'll get nothing other than what Hashem allows to happen anyway. But if that's the life you choose, Hashem will allow it to be so. But it will not be lasting. It's the path of least resistance. It's also the path that leads to the least or no fulfillment. And so there is no lasting satisfaction, no nachas. There's a mimer from the Rebbe that was edited by the Rebbe in 1989, but it was delivered originally on Yeral of Nissen in the year 1971. And the Rebbe says that another way of explaining this idea that some people chose the ministers, the provincial powers to be, or the armed forces, he says it's known that the nations worshipped the, the stars, the constellations, and that these constellations are considered to be a garzan biyada chaitzav. They're considered to be the hatchet in the hands of the woodchopper. So that's where so to speak, the beneficence comes from. But it's not really where its source is. There's a, a silly story, a joke they tell about a conference of sheikhs somewhere in the very, very oil-rich Middle East. And they come together into this hotel in Dubai and there's you know gold and silver everywhere. And the next morning when the sheikhs check out and go back to their desert kingdoms or desert uh, nomadic areas of, of control, the gold faucets in all the rooms were missing. And they launched an, an investigation, these, these, these incredibly wealthy, oil-rich sheikhs. Why did they take the gold faucets? And they said, because we have no water in the desert. So we figured we'd take the faucet with us. It's a silly joke. The point, of course, is the faucet doesn't get you water. The faucet is only a point of diffusion. It has to be connected to the source. So the nations would worship these various sources of spiritual beneficence, of hashpa. But ultimately, it's giving credit to the paintbrush instead of the artist. It's giving credit to the typewriter instead of the writer. These are but tools that are used by the real artist, the real writer, by the real source of everything we have. So we can choose to follow what's apparent, or we can see beyond the surface and appreciate the truth. So some choose to look at the apparent reality. <laughs> 
they prostrated themselves before these stars or constellations, which actually represent shamans and spirits. They worshipped them. Their mistake was that the beneficence that comes through these spiritual forces was by the virtue of their choice so they could affect a greater amount of bounty or goodness. That's why the thought, and here the Rebbe quotes that famous Gemara in Meseches Bavakama, you're thanking the waiter. You're, it's not the waiter's wine. The waiter can only serve the wine he's given. Sure, say thank you. But in the end, appreciate whose wine you're getting. And the Rebbe goes on to develop this in, in a various levels where it's on one level can be a lekada lekaya where they're still worshiping God and then it devolves into a level where they forget about the source altogether. The point of course is that we look at this and laugh. Instead we should look in the mirror and laugh or maybe cry because this is what we're doing every day of our lives. The fools in that story (laughs) is the fool talking to you and the fool you are so often. So often, we get carried away by the apparent reality. A person threatens to ruin our business, to take away our livelihood. A person promises to make us prosper. Nobody can control you. Nobody can take away what's rightfully yours. Nobody can give you what you aren't deserving. In the end, it's all be a day, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Everything. And this is something we have to not only be mindful of, but something we actually have to work into our feelings. And when you feel the right way, you don't have fear. You don't have concern. You don't have anxiety. Because they can't threaten you. Neither can they benefit you. That comes ultimately from the Creator. And the Creator alone. Rabbeinu Yoyna in his commentary in the third chapter of Mishlei, makes this very, very clear. I'll share with you a quote. A few quotes. He says, Da, you must know. Ki ha-betochen means there are no doubts. Inyin ha-betochen ki socher ha-betech A person who's hired he trusts implicitly the one who is going to be, so to speak, paying his wages. He's doing his work. He's doing it in a generous way. He's doing it in a devoted and dedicated way. The king himself hired him. Countries don't go bankrupt. The one who trusts in Hashem, even if things don't look right. He intensifies his efforts of serving Hashem. And he believes with absolute certainty. Because his reward will be even greater. Hashem is choosing for him that which is truly good for him. Inyin Abitochen, says Rabbeinu Bachai later on in the same, same section. Shayeda im that he knows in his heart. 
Ki hakol biyadei shomayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven. Ubiyadei. And it's within God's purview. Lishanei sativim. Ula hachlef hamazel. It doesn't matter what the prognosis is. It doesn't matter what the economic future says. It, none of this matters. The mazel can change. There is nothing that stands in God's way. God is always in control. He's at mission control. We have a mission to carry out. Anxiety, fear, God's in control. Later on in the same section. Amongst the ideas that are included in this description of what we call full trust in Hashem, never place your trust in people. No human being can do you harm or goodness. Unless it's God's decree. It is not within the hand of wherewithal, ability, or purview of a human to do anything that harms you. This is what David Amalek says in Psalm 56. I have trusted in God. I have no fear of people. That's easy to say. But this is how we have to live, my friends. And that's the meaning of betochen. There's a fascinating comment. It's found in Rashi. It takes place at the, at the end of the book of Genesis. Jacob is buried. Joseph and his brothers return to Mitzrayim. The family isn't really getting together anymore, and people take note. The brothers of Joseph are deeply concerned. And they, they begin to fear. They begin to fear that maybe now Joseph will exact vengeance. In fact, they colored the truth. They made up a story. They said, Vayitzavu el Yosef. So they had this message sent to Yosef Lamer. Your father, before he died, he gave instructions. He said, Ko tomru Yosef, this is what you should say, what you must say to Yosef. Please now, forgive your brothers, v'chatosam, and their terrible sin, their crime. Kirog molcha, because they have treated you terribly. Now, you must, so to speak, forgive this crime against you. You have to forgive this crime because, because the children are like servants of God. When Yosef hears these words, he fears, he, he, he weeps. They're like invoking God's name as if to say, you know, people are here today, gone tomorrow, God is here forever, you'll be answerable to God. Yosef weeps. And then the brothers come, and they say, We are your servants. And here they are, throwing themselves to the ground. 
truth was Joseph saying? Yosef says, Joseph says to his brothers, what are you afraid of? Am I instead of God? You had bad intentions. And yet, God, in turn, arranged that this worked out for the best. So, do you think that I can actually do something to harm you? Rashi tells us in his commentary that Yosef told his brothers, If one light, ten lights, pardon me, couldn't extinguish one light, in other words, Yosef's brothers, Neshamot, who tried to harm Yosef, to kill him. He said, then how can one light extinguish ten lights? You think I can do anything? It's all in Hashem's hands. The Rebbe once asked about this. Why did Yosef have to remind them of the, the bad? You thought bad, but Hashem made it good. Why didn't he just say to them, Am I instead of God? He just say, Hashem takes care of everything. So the Rebbe explained that Yosef wanted to convey to his brothers that even in the worst of circumstances, and even when criminal activities were carried out, as Yosef's brothers did, Hashem can take the negative and turn it into the positive. Is that a predictable story? He never should have made it out of the pit. He should have been stung by scorpions and died on the spot. He makes it out of the pit. He sold as a slave. Could anybody ever in the wildest of dreams imagine that this would be the catalyst that would vault Yosef into the most powerful position in the civilized world at the time? Unfathomable, unthinkable, impossible. And yet that's what Hashem made happen. The lowest moment in Yosef's life is what led to his meteoric rise. Multiple times, I should say. And as such, it's pretty clear that this idea that nobody really is in control other than Hashem is not a Rabbeinu Bachayan new idea. It's as old as the Torah itself. In that famous Sikha, which we've quoted so many times from the 36th volume of Lakota Sikhas, the Rebbe says, so what should a Yid do? He says, well, you should do what David HaMelech says, throw your hope, your anticipation unto God, and He will provide for you. The Rebbe says, the very notion of throwing or casting your hope on Hashem, the very force the power of a person who can rid himself of anxiety and concern and worry and say, I trust in Hashem. That's what brings you the sustenance, the wonderful blessings from Hashem. I want to finish today by sharing with you a, it's a letter from the Rebbe. Somebody happened, Dashgach Pratis saw the class advertised on Facebook. So he said he happened to come across these letters, a friend of mine, so he sent them to me, a link this morning. Fascinating set of letters written in the summer of 1953. 
I don't know who the recipient, the name isn't written, but this much I can gather. He was a rabbi in the early 50s, and he seemed to be locking horns with the synagogue executive. And in the first letter that Rebbe says to him about being a little more caring, that a rabbi shouldn't only worry about Torah mitzvahs, but should care about people too. And the Rebbe talks to him about the incongruity of making compromises in his Yiddishkeit in order to appease the shul executive. It seems that they were pressuring him to, to modify his certain Yiddishkeit practices. And the fact that he was doing things by the book were impeding on his success and even threatening to make him lose his livelihood. Deborah writes to him that that's, that's a, I mean, there's a first letter, but the second letter is very, very powerful. So I want to share with you a snippet of what the Rebbe wrote in that letter because really this is, this is every one of us. We could have written this letter to any of us at any given time where we make the same mistake again and again, anticipating different results, which of course is Einstein's definition of insanity. Quote, this is found in the seventh volume of Igris Kedish. It's on page 261. Pashut, it is abundantly simple, obvious. That a person's sustenance is entirely vested in the hands of God. And this is the case of everything. And anyone who needs parnosa, it's all in Hashem's hands. This is a fundamental principle of faith for a Jewish man or woman. Asher HaKadosh Baruch emphasized in bold, is the Zanum of Arnas. It is God who is the provider. The person who says, sometimes to himself, that it's in the hands of another to ruin his parnasah. Even though God in his Torah rules otherwise, not only is this fly in the face of what Jewish people are supposed to believe in, of the basic tenets of our faith. This denies the very essence of divine providence, which is not a Jewish thing. I feel alien with them. It's nothing to do with you, Jewish or not. Mission control is mission control for everybody's mission in life. And so, taking oneself out of the plurality of those poised to receive Hashem's blessing, you put yourself under the shadow of the statement of our sages, then you can't say, God, why did I fall into the hands of the wicked? Because you put your trust in the wicked. Because you actually feared or were anxious of those who were wicked instead of placing your trust in Hashem and in Hashem alone. In other words, Hainu, that is to say, 
that you have opened a door. You've made yourself susceptible to the harmful influence of this particular person. That's powerful. Scary stuff. In other words, nothing can happen that Hashem doesn't want to happen. And sometimes our bad behavior is what brings us into a dark situation. The Ever says, it has to know that Parnassah comes from Hashem. Relying on other people for Parnassah might actually put you in their hands by God's design. Because God says, if that's the way you want to behave, you're on your own, so to speak. Now this person wrote to the Rebbe, apparently responding to the Rebbe from his last letter. He said, well, if so, how come more pious rabbis don't have nicer shuls? How come they're not making a better salary, he said. The Rebbe said, this is a very old question. In the language of the scripture, So why do the wicked prosper? And the Rebbe says, Meish Rabbeinu stumbled, so to speak, or had a hard time with the same question. When he said, God, show me your ways. Why is it that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? As the Gemara explains it in Masechet Brachot. And there are many answers for this question. But the Rebbe said, as the previous Rebbe used to say, in Kedai Zman Derech It is superfluous, a waste of time to focus on this question. So why does God do A, B, and C? Say, I don't know why God does A, B, and C. What difference does that make on a practical level? On a practical level, you have to know. It is not that in these people your parnasa is. So then why do I have to make efforts to make a living? If it's all in God's hands, why doesn't God just send it to me? Because Torah rules that we're not permitted to rely on miracles. So therefore you have to do whatever is possible, whatever was within your ability, obviously in a way that's kosher. You have to do things in a natural way. But Mela move on, but it's self-evident. Ashari Efsha Shakim mitzvah behidr mitzvah that the fulfillment of Hashem's mitzvahs or being meticulous about a mitzvah should ruin the parnasa, should ruin that which is rightfully coming to you. Because God is the commander of the mitzvahs. So the upshot is everything's in Hashem's hands. And if we place our trust elsewhere, or if we fear other individuals were phased by their threats or ingratiate ourselves inappropriately because we believe they can bring us salvation and help us, then in that case, we might place ourselves in harm's way. They can't harm us unless we choose that path, in which case Hashem ordains it to be so. That's kind of like, you know, the consequence. So if we put our trust in Hashem and we are mindful in a heartfelt way that Hashem ultimately, God and God alone is the one who calls all the shots. He is the one in control. And we live with that kind of trust and faith. 
then this itself becomes the conduit through which many, many of Hashem's blessings can all come our way. I know this is easy to speak about. It's easy for me to speak about too. It's hard to implement this. And that's really what the journey of Betachen is about. It begins with a conversation. It begins with some mindfulness. It has to move into a state of contemplation. Constantly reminding oneself, accustoming oneself to look at the world differently until it becomes our second nature, who we are. And that is the most powerful way for us indeed to live with certainty as we learn how to trust. Thank you for joining today. Please take a moment to like and to share with your family and friends. If you aren't yet subscribed, I'd appreciate it if you did it right now. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And may we merit the time in which everything will be clear, obvious, and overt with the coming of Mashiach. Bimheira ubi speedily, and in our days. Amen. Thank you again for joining.